This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. It's powered by Digital Media. Here with Keith Richmond, who is, I always call you the CEO of Defy Media, but you're president of Defy Media. That's correct. I think Defy Media is a little bit in the Rodney Dangerfield zone. You're a big <laughs> video producer. You like know how that. to do something a lot of people don't. And I think a lot of folks outside a pretty small circle of media people don't know what Defy Media is. Am I summing that up correctly? I think that is, uh, unfortunately, a fair characterization. So I always, I always introduce you as, these are the guys who produce Smosh. And most people who read Recode probably don't watch Smosh, but they may have heard of Smosh. Smosh is two dudes primarily who are a giant YouTube brand. And they've now expanded, this is why you're shaking your yeah. head, into a bigger YouTube brand. But it started off with two dudes from California. Yeah, I mean, I think the 50,000-foot view of Defy is because we own a bunch of other brands and channels is we're a big creator of digital programming for 13 to 34 year olds. Video primarily, <clears> right? <throat> video or with focus on video. That's primary why we're excited focus on about video. you. Yeah. And we, you know, we're the largest owner of YouTube channels. We have about 70 million subscribers to our various channels. And this is more of an owned and operated model. It's not a network model uh, where we're renting the channels uh, in deals like that. We are the owners of the of the channels, and we are the producers of programming for those channels. So you make you make lots of content that you own, yes, distributed on the internet yes. on places like YouTube. I think Facebook. We'll talk about all of that. In yep. in an earlier era, you were called Break. Yeah, so Defy uh, is actually uh, the result of a merger between two companies, one Break Media and the other Alloy Digital. And we came together in 2000, at the end of 2013 uh, to create Defy. And we did it uh, because we were both getting to a scale. And it was a scale at which, no matter how successful we were, we always felt that we couldn't invest enough in programming. So and by coming together, we were able to do that. So talk about scale. So just, again, assume that yeah. the listeners of this podcast have never heard of Defy. How, how big is the company? How many folks are you reaching? Can we put it into the context of a TV network? Yeah, so like I said, we have 70 million YouTube subscribers. Uh, <clears throat> we do about 800 million views a month to our content. Majority of that's actually on YouTube, which is a rarity nowadays when people talk about, about views. Uh, we get about 50 million people a month to our various websites, you know, Breaks, Mosh, uh, yeah, we have a website called girl.com that's really popular. Uh, the company's got about 375 people in it, uh, spread between Los Angeles, New York, and then some sales offices around the country. And like you said, you, you started off as a primarily YouTube company. And right now, all the excitement around video has shifted to Facebook mm -hmm. and Snapchat. The bulk of your business is still coming out of YouTube? Yeah, I mean, we spend a lot of time focusing on those other platforms, but YouTube is still the most consistent uh, and predictable platform out there. And it's also very uh, trendy. I don't know if trendy is the right word. Lots of people who are doing what you do in some capacity say, oh, and the next step is TV. Are you guys making a TV show? Are you, are you buying a TV network? Have you convinced Time Warner to give you headline news or anything like that? I mean, we're involved in a lot of those conversations. I think what really? we've done to date is... I was being facetious. Um, you're going to buy a network? I mean, like I said, we, we're because of the scale, the scale at which the brands operate and the fact that we do, you know, we have 72 original shows that we produce a week. So we have the ability to program a lot of content to a network already. We are in conversations about everything from taking a two-hour block to what would it mean to have bigger opportunities around a lot of our channels. I, I think... What we're focused on primarily is what do these brands mean and how do we get the most out of these brands in the right place um, for those brands specifically. And so for Smosh last year, we did a movie. Uh, we have another movie that we've announced. We have another, a bunch of TV opportunities that we're exploring. So I, I get why it makes sense for you guys to make a Smosh movie. You guys did a, you're doing Smosh live shows now mm -hmm. as well. And your audience will go see that movie wherever you can get it to them. 
but your audience is also the audience that is no longer watching TV, right? They're they're not even cord cutters; they're cord nevers because you're you're dealing with teens and early twenty somethings primarily. What's the point of putting your stuff on a TV network other than sort of bragging rights? You know, I think we believe the audience will go and watch the content wherever it is. So the the reason the TV networks care is because they want to see if putting our type of programming on their networks is something that will attract younger viewers. So it's very straightforward, right? Like yeah. what we have, what we have, they're not watching. Right. Let's try something else. Yes. And for us, it's, it is a, uh, there's a modicum of respect that comes with it. There's certainly money that comes with it because no matter what we call it today, the business model arbitrage is still in uh, the television network's favor. So there's more money in TV, so why not? This is basically what Shane Smith said. Yep. Why not go there if they're going to pay us to put our programming on? That's right. But it seems like you guys, I mean, you're not doing it yet, so I can't put you in that group, but it seems like Vice is going to be sort of set up for failure because you know, their, their ratings are very modest, is non-existent now. And maybe they'll, you know, they'll get an entire generation of people who don't watch cable TV to watch cable TV, but that doesn't seem likely. There was a story about how they had to uh, do screenings in their office because no one who, none of the people, folks who are actually producing that stuff watch cable TV, <laughs> have, have pay TV subscriptions. Yeah. It seems like you guys would end up in the same category, except you're, maybe your audience is even younger than the Vice uh, audience. I also think it's more broad in a lot of cases. I mean, I think if you take our sort of 50,000-foot position, it's over time there will be a greater correlation between dollars paid and what people watch. And right now, when you look at media, it's pretty disparate. There's a lot of people that make a lot of money for programs that very small audiences And this watch. is an old story for media, right? The dollars don't follow the eyeballs as closely as you would expect. People have been talking about moving dollars moving online for years, and they are, but it doesn't, it's not a one-to-one thing. No, and I mean, it's taken a long time on the ad side for that to happen, but certainly in the world of cable bundles and channels that were jammed in by big conglomerates, there's even more magnification of a lot of those um, issues. And so we believe that as those dollars get freed up, our brands are big enough and the audiences and really the engagement. We've, what we focus on here a lot is watch time, like how, much, how many people are actually spending time engaging with our programming. And apples to apples, we fare very favorably. And so, like I said, we're very platform agnostic. What we do know is no matter what platform we've been on, we've managed to find an audience that really likes our content. And TV, in a lot of ways, is just another platform. It just happens to be one that today might monetize better. But we share your concern about what that means in the future. Yeah, I guess I'm more curious. I don't know if I'm concerned. Yeah. It's your business, not mine. Yeah. Although I guess I'm kind of in that business, too. So we'll figure, maybe I'm concerned. Yeah. I'm also concerned, Keith. I'm deeply concerned. I was going to say, you're deep in that business at this point. Yeah. So you, you were big on YouTube where people go and seek out the stuff, right? So you build a fan base on YouTube. You guys have figured that business out. Then not... It's kind of overnight, right? The the model shifts and everyone becomes fascinated with Facebook, and Facebook is not set up that same way. You you don't the stuff comes to you. How do you adapt your business to when when things change that radically? Well, the nice thing is we have big social presences. So on all these platforms, we already go in with an inherent advantage for most of our brands. I think Smosh itself has 10 million fans on Facebook. Break has by 5 million fans on Facebook uh, or something like that. So you, you already have large install bases of audiences that you can program to. So the question is more of an understanding of what kind of programming works on, the, on that platform specifically and what's the business model you can build around creating programming for that platform. And you know, we've clearly seen with Facebook is it's not necessarily the same kind of content. So you make different stuff for Facebook than you would for YouTube? Or we edit. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, sometimes we shoot entirely different stuff. But is a there, lot of times is, we just create edited versions. That is are there shorter. an overarching theme like, oh, this is Facebook content. This is not this is YouTube content. What's the difference? I mean, I actually think I heard Gary talk about it in one of your podcasts where, you know, what, what worked for a while on Facebook, and this is with all these platforms, you have to stay ahead of the curve, uh, was shorter videos with um, 
closed captioning on them so people Something's can Something's got to pop. Yeah, you can see it in your screen. You know, clearly food videos seem to work on, on Facebook. Um, but to your point, it's not a programmed entity where you can tell people, watch this first, watch this next, go from here to here. And I believe over time they will add m many more elements of true programming as they go. Uh, and so from our perspective, it's how do we stay on top of the platform, learn what they do well today, and plan for what we think is an inevitable future in a lot of these places. Are you guys making money on Facebook? I know that's another big concern. It's, there doesn't seem to be a lot of ad revenue generated. You know, so we, we go in, we always go into new platforms with what I'd say is, you know, reasonable expectations, and we've been thrilled by how much What's a reasonable expectation? You know, close to zero in most cases. <laughs> because you just don't low know. bar. Because you have to, to you're banking on your success there, which I think we're pretty confident in, as well as their ability to introduce a new product to the marketplace. And sometimes that takes longer. Uh, and so we got our first check from Facebook, and we were shocked at how big it was. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons we got more excited about the platform. Was Are you one of the groups that's splitting ad revenue in that test with them? Are yeah. You in that, so you're in that group. It's a pretty rare group. They've given you any sense they're going to expand that eventually? I just don't know. No clue? No. Even if we turn the microphone off? No, no. Even if we turn the know. microphone off, yeah. Okay. And, and when you're trying to figure out these bets, this is another thing that all the media companies have. Facebook opens up, Snapchat opens up. I'm sure there's four other platforms that open up since we started talking. You guys raised a bunch of money, but you still have, you're still resource constrained. How do you decide, all right, we're going to put, we are on YouTube. Now we're going to spend this much creating Facebook videos. We have to spend this much time on Snapchat. How do you go through that balance? How do you balance those those demands? I mean, it's slightly easier when you're talking about platforms which are very well established, like a Facebook or a Snapchat. I mean, the bet there, you can make a reasonable assumption that over time that's going to make sense for you, even if there are some bumps in the road as to how you get there. The question is, what about those other four that you talked about? And arguably, you should be on all of them. Uh, you should be experimenting. And we know very well from our experience that being early is a real advantage to learning the intricacies of a platform. And you know, we often say that YouTube... Because for a while, Snapchat was a tiny platform, right? Right. When it was for sexting. I mean, I mean, DJ Khaled. I mean, look at, you know, the people yeah. that were able to build You're large You're suggesting that DJ Khaled wouldn't be a big star if he showed up today at Snapchat? I think it would be a lot more, a lot more challenging yeah. for him, um, most certainly. Uh, you know, like you, we look at YouTube, and everyone says there's no barrier to entry. It's an open platform, but the reality is, that's a perception. The reality is there's, there's a meaningful barrier to entry to being successful on YouTube and understanding it. And so knowing that, we take every new platform very seriously and we have a lot of people here that look at it and you know the rationale for why we invest what in them really depends on whether we think there's an advertising opportunity that we can build around it whether or not we think our audiences are going to end up being there because it's a, an innovation or a new type of product you know we've been, we've been playing a lot with lively as we look at live we don't play that much with musically excuse a little younger than the kind of stuff that we do just as an example and, and when you said there's a meaningful barrier to entry on youtube what what is that What's the difference between you guys and someone who hasn't gotten into YouTube yet for whatever reason? I think there's one, at this stage, 10 to 11 years of learning as to how the platform works. We have a team of, I want to say at least 10 people, but it might be more now, whose whole job it is to figure out how to make things work on YouTube more successfully. And that's everything from what you title it to how you link over to the next video to how you cross-pollinate between channels that we have. So in... Just knowledge and education is a real is a real start, and then just install bases of audiences. So we think of ourselves as having the 8:30 time slot after Seinfeld or Friends back in the day, because when we launch something, we have a big audience to promote it to, and a lot of videos that are watched that we can also point from to. So I was reading this interesting thing in synopsis, I think, this morning about promo time given to shows. 
which I thought was on I've traditional never seen TV that, or in traditional. Yeah. I had never seen that actually, uh, and I thought it was really interesting. And I want to go back and kind of think about how we. That's kind of the main thing it. that TV does, right? Is yeah. is promote other TV shows. That's sort of the main benefit of being on TV is you can promote another show, and it's gonna go away in an Apple TV world where you call up shows yes. on demand. And it's terrifying for those guys. But in our platform, in our world, we think that we can do that between our social channels and the promotion that we can do there, as well as the existing install base of people watching different kinds of content on all these platforms. We feel like we have that. And so us getting smarter about how do we use that is a goal that we always have. How'd you get into this, Keith? Uh, So my background was actually more in software. And I had been doing, uh, up in Silicon Valley, I had been doing a startup, one that sold to eBay called BillPoint back in 98. And how'd you get into that? Uh, I was working at a company called Classifieds 2000. We were one of the first Classifieds companies and Excite bought us. And, and, you, and you, did, you did what there? You were a I was just business dev guy? I was biz, biz dev. dev. And you one of the biz bi- dev look about you. Yeah, I did. I do. Actually, I started, my, I started at Disney in corporate finance. Um, so I should have a finance look about me. And what too. was the plan? The plan at that point was you to... You get to Disney out of school? I went right straight, straight. I went to Stanford. went straight to Disney. No MBA. And you go yeah. to Stanford, you Disney, boom, you should be set. You stay there for 40 years. And uh, it, it was great. Uh, and then I got a call from a friend who had gone to this company up uh, in, in Palo Alto called Classifieds 2000. And I started thinking about where my behavioral habits were turning, and I realized I should probably... And this is mid to late 90s. And this is 1995. And people, oh, Internet, this yeah. is a thing. Yahoo's gone public probably then. Netscape is out there. It had just uh, gone public, yeah. And so you, you were part of that. Netscape had just You were part of that troop of... Early adopters. I'm guessing you were probably a, a it was early khakis early. and, and blue no, denim had, shirt it, guy. You know, no one really knew what was going on quite yet. I think that didn't really start till 98. That was when the traffic got really Super bad. Early. Yeah, and so there was not a big pot of people that really were willing to throw their lives away in theory, uh, in theory to go up there. And back then it was a real meaningful pay cut. I mean, nowadays the world's different and people treat equity a lot differently. But back then you would make half of what you were making uh, maybe a third in the hopes that the equity would become meaningful. Um, and so that was a big so trade. So you, you made the gamble. That worked out? Yeah, you know, I was just, I was employee 30-something. So it worked out great for employee 30-something. And I had a really great learning experience from two talented founders who uh, <clears throat> went off and I, I think never really did anything again uh, when that company got bought by Excite. And one of the things we learned... Uh, Excite was, an, was a search engine. For those who might not know. It's astonishing to tell people this now, but there used to be more than one search engine. Yeah. There were like five or six. You could get a search engine that, that combined all the search engines. It was actually a portal more than <clears throat> at that stage too, yeah. uh, which is why they bought Classifieds 2000 to be their uh, Classifieds vertical. So they buy you guys out. Um, you get out of that. When, how do you get into media? Uh, so in 2002, uh, we sold a company that I had started called OnePage to Sybase. And back then, software was very slow. And unlike today, when you can just release it and it actually is, is pulled into the organization by people who want to use the software. Uh, back then, it was traveling the world, talking to IT departments. Um, and I think, by and large, it still is in a lot of cases. And I just moved down to L.A. to try to do something more fun in media, thinking that software moves slow. And then I moved down here and I realized that it takes 10 years to make a movie. Uh, so you were like <laughs> everyone else who – did you grow up around here? I grew up. So my family was so you, here. So you knew the business. So I just came you back. Had a, you I came sense, back but you're like, that looks like more fun than selling – Enterprise software. Yeah. I mean, essentially, it, 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 I, my theory was it couldn't be any more slow moving. It was actually more a speed, uh, speed to market. And then I found out it actually is as slow moving as selling software. And still is today, right? Especially for the established guys. Like, it's really hard for them to make a cheap, fast movie or a TV show just talking to someone else about this. Yeah. And, and now I understand why. I mean, because I've been down here more and I've and that's because I'm much what? more educated. I've, 
you're taking big bets most of the time. And when you hire a director, you're hiring people who you're giving great authority to, and lots of money to do something with, not to mention the marketing expense in most cases, and your limited shelf space, even though that, again, there doesn't seem to be, there really is limited shelf space. So you have to take every decision really seriously and make sure that you're making the right ones. And finding the uber-talented people who can write those things, produce those things, direct those things, and do all the below-the-line items on those things is very hard. So and we can talk about sort of how you guys yeah. have scaled in a world where, that ha- where that's still happening. So then you, you got into media how then? So essentially after realizing that I wasn't in the business of making big-budget movies uh, or television shows, I started looking around online and I was just going to a lot of different websites as I uh, thought about what I wanted to do next. And the real story is I missed uh, Janet Jackson's nipple slip at the Super Bowl in 2004. <laughs> and I went online, and I'd always had a decent computer and a relatively high-speed internet connection, but you video said, never worked. Show me some nudity, internet. Vi- yeah, vi- video never worked for me. And I went, and there were 5,000 websites that within two minutes of, of the actual event had already had it up on their website. And I thought, wow, that's pretty immediate, and that's great. And then I would go to a lot of the traditional sites, and they had those pop-up players. I don't yep. know if you remember those. Sure. And you, you know, my computer crashed while I was waiting for the video. And I just spent a lot more time going to these different video sites. And um, there was a, uh, a site that I really liked going to, whose name was big-boys.com. And it was a funny site. And I emailed the guy, and I asked if I could partner with him. And, uh, and later in the year, he Because you liked their, their nip slip? No, I just, slip. I liked the voice. It was a funny voice that I thought resonated. Uh, really well. And because everybody was doing the same videos. I mean, back then it was all commoditized, but it was the voice that really resonated. I thought this is a voice that can scale that a lot of people are going to like if we can just figure out how to do that. And so later in the year, uh, I partnered with him and bought, basically bought a lot of the site from him along with another friend. Uh, Although that guy still works for us in, uh, he's in Huntley, Illinois, where he's from. And uh, from that, we, I was in the media business. And, and, and that, that's what became Break? That's what became Break. And then at some point, Lionsgate, the movie studio, and we were just talking about how slow movie studios are, ended up owning a big chunk of, of what was then Break. Yep. So in 2007, they were, uh, and Lionsgate has always, I think, done a lot to be more forward-thinking and experimental. Good uh, investors. Uh, and, ju- and I think in the, on the film side, I think they're just always willing to try new models out. Uh, it's one of the things I really respect about them. Uh, they started looking, and I think the approach they, they were coming from was, who are we working with on the ad side? And they had been doing a lot of stuff with us, so we went in and we met with them, and that ended up leading to the investment. And, um, and they've been great partners for us uh, for a long time now. Normally when an when a entertainment conglomerate or even a film studio invests in an internet thing, the notion is, oh, we're eventually going to buy these guys, or we're going to absorb them somehow, and we're going to get their digital knowledge, or at least their brand, whatever it is, they're, they're, we're going to suck them up. But they've just, they've never bought you guys, obviously, because you're, you're still an independent company. Yeah. Why do you think they want to own a minority stake in a digital video company? I think, I mean, you have to ask them that going back a long time. But I think a lot of it was, was just learning and seeing what the platform was and having more people. Back. It was still fairly early. Because they haven't uh, gotten in into the, video the YouTube space. video business, right? They're still making movies. They're, they're still They still business. make movies. They're one of the biggest TV producers. Mm-hmm. They're very prolific. And now they just bought stars. So I think over the course of our relationship, they've evolved as a business a lot. And we've seen them do things like buy Summit, and then they own the Twilight uh, franchise. They did Hunger Games. So I think 
you know, if I were in their shoes, I think they've been doing a lot of things which are really logical and smart for how they should grow their business. And I remember talking to you a couple of years ago, and, and your aspiration then was, to, I don't know if it was your aspiration, one of the things you thought would happen was that you guys were going to sort of get more into the feature film business and or create a sort of sandbox for Lionsgate or whoever where they could try out new ideas relatively cheaply and distribute them through you. Did that ever, it doesn't seem like that ever took off. Well, I think a lot of it we started doing ourselves. You know, as our presence grew digitally, our desire and our need to do that became less relevant. So as our scale improved, our ability to fund those things. But you had ourselves. a cool pitch, though, right? Which is like, hey, Fox or whomever, you've got this yeah. great brand, you've got this cool character, but you don't want to throw $150 million at this. Why don't you yeah. make a $2 million whatever with us? Why do you think they're not doing that, either with you or somebody else? I think there's generally a lot of interest still in, in doing those things. Uh, we, uh, we, we get hit up with that offer in some form or another a lot. The problem becomes once, if you're actually big enough to be able to help them do that, you're also using your promotional time, your own sales time, your distribution for things that you own a bigger stake in. Right, so why spend yeah. your time making helping Fox make a superhero movie if it's not your superhero? Right, and then now that we have the scale to launch our own IP and our own franchises, we tend to do more of that. So I made a Rowdy and Dangerfield reference at the beginning. Um, you guys announced relatively recently, I don't know when we'll drop this, but, but relatively recently you, you uh, raised $70 million. And I think a lot of people knew you were out looking for money. When you announced you had raised $70 million, I was asking a couple of different people sort of what they thought. And they all made either the email emoji exclamation point guy, or they did it in person, or they said things like, wow. Um, people were really shocked that you raised that much. Why do you think people aren't, we're surprised to see you raise that much, period, I guess, make it less leading. You know, we talk about that a lot internally. Um, the Rodney Dangerfield problem? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I don't think we call it that, but I, I might now. Because that's old. I yeah. might now, yeah. Uh, although I did just watch Back to School, um, a classic. Filmed in Wisconsin. Uh, the Triple Indy. Um, never gets old. <laughs> um, Robert Downey Jr. is in that movie. We're very old. I, it might be his best role. Um, <laughs> you know, puts Iron Man to shame. But the, uh, I think part of it was... I think two things. You know, we don't spend a lot of time marketing Defy itself as a brand. So, you know, it's one of the things when we look back that we probably should have done more of is get the name Defy out there. What we did a great job is of is getting screen junkies out there and making that something that's super relevant in Los Angeles. Uh, doing, getting Smosh out there in the last year of getting Clever out there. Because your audience shouldn't care and will never care who owns Smosh, right? They don't. And, you know, and here if it's they owned by Viacom at some point, they won't care. Correct. Unless it becomes shitty, then right. they care. But they'll care about that if we make it right. uh, crappy as well. So the the reality is we just haven't done a, a – it hasn't been a big priority in the past to get the name of Defy out there. And, you know, going forward, it you know, obviously will be because we've seen, we've seen a lot of that same reaction uh, as you have. And it seems like part of it also was there was a couple years where video companies, digital companies were raising a lot – kept going up and up. Last year, NBC put a couple hundred million in Vox Media, where I work, also in BuzzFeed. And then it seemed like there was a retrenchment and you were reading stories. I was writing some of these stories about investors were nervous about digital and now it's time for them to show they can make money. Yeah. You would probably and, say it more cynically than that? Yeah, you would yeah. yeah. That. And, um, well, it depends. In print, I'm usually more measured. But uh, um, And now it seems like it's gone back again. You've raised money, Mashable's raised yeah. money, Refinery29. They're all different stories. Yeah. Um, but it seems like if you can tell people you're in digital and there's video and there's growth, they're into it. No, I think a lot of it's that there's more understanding. I'd say, 
there's still not great understanding, but there's a lot more understanding of the nuances of everybody's business. So if you go back two years ago or three years ago, everybody was in an MCN, which is a multi-channel network, and nobody could tell whether you were programming it, whether somebody else was programming it. This is, this is a company that accumulates a lot of YouTube views. Yes, but doesn't necessarily own the IP behind uh, the YouTube views or produce the programming. And it just created a lot of noise in the marketplace. And what you're seeing now is the people on every side of the equation are much more educated because either they've tried to advertise and they've realized it's complicated or they've kicked the tires on a lot of these companies and they realized that it was uh, not something that would fit into their organization. And so you're seeing the companies that have built real voices or real brands in some way, shape, or form get rewarded for having focused on programming and voices and distribution. Uh, we were talking about costs before and how the, the big guys have a difficult time making cheap stuff. So the pitch for you guys is the same pitch as BuzzFeed and Vice and lots of other people, which is we figured out how to be nimble and quick and make this stuff quickly and cheaply and, and iterate. But everyone has the same pitch, and there's still only X number of youngish employees who will work for not that much money. Um, you still have to house them somewhere. And at some point, there's probably a limited pool of how many of these people are talented, right? So at some point, don't you bump up against the same scaling problems that established company X, Y, or Z, a Fox, a Comcast, a Disney have? Uh, well, those are all different challenges when you think about it. It's you know, can you find the right people? Can you retain the right people? And what is the cost of not only the right people, but of doing things at different levels like of If scale. you can make and edit video right now, you're a hot commodity in digital world. Yeah, I, I think if you can make and edit video well, and if you can do pretty much anything well, you're a hot commodity in the digital world because there's still rare skill sets to find. Right, but everyone's saying, yeah. get me video, right? So you have to go get a guy or woman who can make video and figure out how to scale it and figure out how to tell people how to do yeah. it. There's a, it seems like there's a limited pool of those people. Right. So I, we have a bunch of different approaches for how we solve some of those things, but I think one of the things that really works for us, which we saw a lot in Screen Junkies when we launched, um, we sort of expanded the programming of Screen Junkies last year. We went from three shows to 16 shows. And one of the positive externalities of that was we became a place that if you were interested in that kind of content, that you really wanted to work. And for people who aren't and watching a Screen Junkies, it's screen people talking about pop culture. It's basically entertainment and film. It's you know The goal is to be the ESPN of entertainment and film. And so we launched a bunch of talk shows, like Pardon the Interruption kind of shows, a bunch of behind-the-scenes kind of programming. But we became the place that if you were really, truly interested in film and the, being a film geek, we were a great place. And so we had tons of people that wanted to come and work here and be part of that community. And then we had people like Kevin Smith come and say, hey, can I work with you guys? And so it ranged from the small guys to the people who were relatively relatively well established. And then we've seen that as we've scaled Smosh as well. So I think it reminded me a lot of what I've heard about HBO back in the day, which was you, know, you want to go to HBO because you're going to be around the right kind of people who are going to elevate you. And a lot of times, uh, not only they pay you well, but they give you the opportunity that you wouldn't otherwise get. And I think that's what we've tried to do in each of our brand pods. Still having said that, we'll see over the next few years, you know, it's up to us to try to make sure we're providing the best, most creative environment for people to, uh, to exist in. So most of the stuff you make is free. You've played around a little bit with selling some of this stuff, getting consumers who watch this stuff to pay for. How's that part working out? Because everyone's talking about having dual revenue streams. It seems like it's a pretty big leap to make for a lot of this content. Well, so you know, dual revenue streams can mean a bunch of different things. Um, what we've seen in the last few years is the ad piece of our business which used to be, I think, three years ago, 100%, is now about two-thirds of the business. And the rest comes from some form of monitor, like 
content licensing, we call it as a bucket, but it's somebody else paying us for programming. Right. And so there's a consumer paying us directly, which we do um, some of, and I think you know we're experimenting with how we can do that more effectively. But I think we're seeing success there. We've what, done sort of, what sort of stuff do consumers pay you to, to watch? Um, they paid us on EST on the Smosh movie originally um, before it went to Netflix. And right now we have a Screen Junkies SVOD service, which they pay us $5. Video. And do you think those are people who are paying because they love the stuff so much, they want to have access to it before anybody else, or they're getting bonus stuff, or are they just fans of the Smosh dudes and this is the same thing as buying a T-shirt? On the EST side for the movie, I think they wanted that before anyone else. It's like, why you go see a movie anywhere? I think on the Screen Junkies side, they do it because it's a program offering that is vastly different than what's free. I mean, we have 16 shows versus three that you can have access to. And just last week, we did, uh, just an example, a roast of Captain America. And so it's quality programming that if you're interested in this kind of content, that appeals to you. And the promise is that we're going to deliver that to you better than anybody else. Where we've seen the biggest explosion is in the platforms that have already built the monetization model coming to us and wanting to get programming. And I think that piece of the business will continue to expand. And that goes back to the conversation we had earlier, which is we think there's $100 billion of money that's kind of going to be thrown up for grabs. And the people who... That's the TV business. That's the TV business. And the people who have access to that money, they're looking for ways to make sure they keep it, which should benefit us. And we're looking for ways that we can get it uh, in a broad pool of direct and indirect opportunities. And so we think we're in a great position to get it there. And under any ecosystem, we think we're going to get paid uh, as that chaos continues. So speaking of chaos and the $100 billion, Viacom owns a chunk of you guys. I think you guys, they gave you guys some game sites and they got equity in you. They're well-documented troubles with their audience, right? That used to be where your, your audience is the audience they used to have. So you're that site now. You're one of those sites. They own a chunk of you. I'm sure you guys have talked about it. Why haven't they bought you? Why didn't you, instead of raising money, why didn't they buy you this year? You'd have to ask uh, them about that. But I think the same well-documented chaos has made them great partners. But, you know, they've been very preoccupied as a business. Because they're for swapping a out their years. CEOs. I mean, there are things like that. It's very hard to, for them to focus on their minority investment in Defy Media. Non-engineering historically. founders, yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, do you think, I mean... Do you work within a Viacom? If, if, if a Viacom, or we can take them out just at any random entertainment conglomerate, if they acquire you guys, does what you do work within that structure, or do you have to sort of be separate from, from a, a big entity like that for it to work? I mean, I think we're a 380-person company, so we have our own infrastructure. At this point, I think it's different when you're a 15-person organization. And, you know, I, I say a lot, of, a lot of times they do those acquisitions, and they're destined for failure. They invest just enough to fail because you get people, no one's really bought into it, and everyone's like, we're just going to dip our toe, and by dipping your toe, you end up drowning versus you know, doing a real... Right. Are you <clears throat> watching what's happening over at Disney? They, they bought Maker. That was a big deal in your space. Um, it, didn't, it didn't generate the money they thought, but it's still, make, still making a lot of money or still generating a lot of revenue. I mean, I, I haven't followed it that closely other than what I'm reading uh, in the news, but I, look, I respect the bet. And I think it was smart of them to try to get into it and play around. Whether or not that was the right company or they knew exactly what they were getting into, you know, I think has been well documented also. But I really respect the fact that Disney decided that this was the future and we're going to take a stab at learning from it. In terms of what we do, it's very different. They were not prolific producers of programming. They were in the middle of trying to make that transition. So we have a production infrastructure that is already in place that makes content that a lot of people see. So that is very transferable anywhere. I think the bigger question for us, forget acquisition, just as we talk to media companies is, 
how do we make their business better? Because what will mark the success of any transaction will ultimately be, did this come into my infrastructure and help me build my business more effectively? And what's great is the steps that we need to take to make sure that could happen one day are the same things that are the steps that need to make us a great independent company. And so building the brands, building the IP, they might be able to exploit it better, but we're still going to need to build it in order for us to be able to exploit it either in partnership with them or separate. It's a very formal answer. But that's the way we think about it because we, a lot of times, particularly when you're younger as a company, you spend time thinking of, well, what is that going to mean if you're acquired? And the reality is, who knows? Because you can't control that. What you can't control is how good you are and how great of a business you're building. And so, you know, long ago, we stopped focusing on the what if. You've got 380 employees. I saw a bunch of them. I'm guessing you're probably the oldest person in the building, if not the oldest. I'm up there. I don't think I'm the oldest. Though. Uh, so as you grow, as you scale a company, um, and as you get farther and farther away from the, the demographic you're trying to target, how do, you, how do you create a system where you have people whose taste and sensibility and separately managerial style like you think works because you can't touch that stuff? And at some point, you can't gauge whether it works yourself, right? Like yeah, you're not a smosh yeah. guy. No, but I think one of the things that we've always focused on as a general management team is we don't try to make the decisions on the programming other than, you know, here's the amount that you should be spending on the programming. Because Les Moonves calls in notes for, you know, uh, what's the Showtime show, the terrorism show? Uh, Homeland? Yeah. Like if he's famous I, yeah, I mean, like it, saying, oh, that actor should show more breasts or yeah. whatever it was. I mean, so if you look at, uh, you know, within our org, Barry Blumberg, who runs programming, you know, Barry still very much does understand that demographic. He produced content and he ran te- Disney television animation. So I think what we've tried to build is a management team that has a long history in understanding and programming for that demographic and the people within the creative pods themselves who are in that audience and really understand it. And it's incumbent upon us to continue to find those people as they get older. Um, to some extent, I think one of the nice things about having people who are aging up in some cases is it gives us the opportunity to take the skill sets that they've developed that you would never otherwise develop if you didn't come up that route and try to think about other things we can do with them. It's one of the reasons why we're now able to do more movies because we have people who... Someone came with you as a scrub and now they've graduated up and now they can make a movie for you? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look around this office in particular... You know, Jeffy, who you met, or you didn't meet, but who helped arrange this, you know, he grew up uh, within the organization. He started with Clever uh, as, a, as a producer, basically, and he now uh, runs production. Uh, the woman who runs post-production, you know, she started out as a contracts administrator. So people have grown up within it, and we've built around them, I think, more traditional talent. But balancing those two, those two sides are, are what makes us successful today. I saw somebody wandering around here in a Pikachu suit. Is that just standard or...? Uh, it's standard that There's someone's wandering around there. in something. The fact that it's Pikachu is probably directly related to some show they're shooting. I think I saw them shooting a show called Seriously Stupid Sleepover. I want to go watch that. We should go watch that. I will let you go. Thanks for your time, Keith. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, you guys, for listening. You guys are smart, so you know how to find us on iTunes and Google Play. Anywhere you want to hear us, we would love for you to keep listening. We'd love it if you told your friends about it. We'd love for you to review and rate us on whatever platform you enjoy listening to us. There are many fine recode uh, products like Kara Swisher's show and Lauren Good's show. Again, you're smart, so you'll find them. Thanks to Digital Media for helping us produce and distribute this show. And thanks to you guys again for listening. See you next week.